0: Is this guy? It seems like Jesus has some real gall. I mean, does he notice? Does he even see how downtrodden these fishermen are when he jumps into their boat and, and asks them to create a floating pulpit for him? He doesn't have a choice, though, because the crowds are pushing in. They are backing him into the water. They are clamoring for his attention, hungry for a word of hope, desperate for healing. And he feeds them from out on the water, offering stories of a new way forward, the whole crowd breathing and laughing and sighing as one. He finally finishes, and at last he sees the fishermen whose boat he has co-opted. I doubt they feel like he sees them, though. Put your nets down again out here where it's deep. Does he have any idea what they have been living? How can he, son of a carpenter, tell them how to fish? They have been up all night long. They caught nothing. They are tired, they are hungry, they stink, they don't have any fish even to show for it all. And he wants them to drop their nets again? Why bother? We'll just have to clean them again. Their eyes bore into him, searching him out, trying to hold the hope that they have just heard him preach. Together with the absurdity he is spouting to them now. Put down their nets again? Really? And then comes their astonishing response. Yet, if you say so. Friends, why try again? What convinces us to go for it, even in the face of futility? I wanna introduce you to some of the fishermen of Los Angeles. They know a thing or two about an act of futility. And yes, I I do recognize there is some humor, maybe a little risk in me preaching about fishing following in Bruce's footsteps. Uh, For those of you who are newer here, my predecessor, he knows a lot about fishing, but bear with me. I, uh, I happened to cross an article on these fishermen this week, and I was so curious what their deeper stories might be. Long ago, I learned that the Los Angeles River was actually a great fishing spot, but as the Spanish arrived and settled there, it changed dramatically. It flooded often and in 1938 there was a terrible flood that destroyed so much of what had been built along the river and it killed almost 100 people. And so the response was to pave most of the river around LA. 278 miles paved together with its tributaries to prevent another disaster which seems to have been successful, though now you can hardly imagine it as a real living river. But then, two years ago, everything changed again. You know this. In LA and here and everywhere, the world shut down, and with it, many people's ability to, well, do anything, to travel, to connect, to adventure, And people were especially stuck at home there in the sprawling city. But some of them, I read, some of them found a way through to goodness, right there along a paved river with litter strewn about and the the sweeping uh, freeway overpasses as the backdrop. Some of them had probably been there all along but this writer, a photojournalist, she noticed that more people seemed to be finding their way to a couple of stretches of the river where somehow, maybe maybe it was an accident, the bottom was never paved over, just the sides. And because of that, trees have grown up there in the shallows and and birds and fish have created this strange urban home there. People walked and, and biked along the river, but they also fished. They they reclined on these massive concrete slopes and they, they carried chairs out onto little paved islands and they they practiced their casting in these huge, empty concrete pools. They came, they figured out how to connect at a distance, how to find some beauty, and maybe catch something. Here's the question that I would love to ask these urban fishermen. When everything had gone belly up, been shut down, barred off, made them try again? What makes anyone try again in the midst of widespread futility? With with such uncertainty that it seems at best like a big gamble, if not outright foolish? Why try? It must have seemed that way to those fishermen at the Lake of Gennesaret. They had fished all night and had nothing to show for it. They hear Jesus' request to try again. They pause and they answer. Yet, if you say so. Their words are appealing and yet they seem like gravel in my mouth. Many days, I want to do what I do because I say so. I want to believe that I know that I am in control and I can predict what's going to happen. At least at least that's, that's what I think that I want. The way of these fishermen and their trust in Jesus' words is a tender thing. It's risky in where it pulls us, in asking us to step out into what may feel like unfounded hope. But something grabs their attention, makes them reconsider. They had only just met Jesus that morning when he stepped into their boat, but his reputation precedes him. John, the baptizer, had been telling folks all about him, all over the Judean wilderness. Coming out of his 40 days wrestling in the the desert, Jesus has been teaching all throughout the region. He's driven out demons rather spectacularly. He's healed the sick. He's told incredible stories. They've heard about him, and they've heard from him, a little bit, and now this, now his direct invitation. Why do they listen? How do they trust him? How do they list their litany of failures and then finish with, "Yet, if you say so? I don't have the answer, but I have curiosity I have longing. I don't presume to know what shifted for the pandemic fishermen of LA, what led them out into the beauty, into this makeshift way of being fed. Nor do I want to put our story on them. But I wonder, just as I wonder about the Galilean fishermen, how they they agreed and dropped their nets in the deep. What happened when they let this wandering teacher's words wash over them as they were sleepily lying there in the boat? Did they daydream? Did they let the words settle in, imagining what this kingdom of God might mean for them? In their exhaustion, could they let down their guards enough to sense the unlikely presence of possibility? Maybe more importantly, what changes with Jesus in the boat? There is some sort of shift. Mystical, powerful, mysterious. Call it what you will. The wild thing, though, is that we don't even have to invite it. He jumps in. We can start by simply acknowledging God's nearness, recognizing this presence of love, tipping our hat to the possibility that we are not alone, that we are accompanied, not just in feasting and in so-called blessing, but joined also in the melancholy of apparent futility and failure. Here is a God who does not abandon us, but instead draws near, stepping into our mess, urging us to trust that goodness still waits for us. This presence begs our trust and our response, risky as both may be. What if, what if this tired, hopeful response becomes our prayer? It's hardly a zealous profession of faith, but it's real, it's daring, it's enough. We take stock of who is here with us in the boat. We listen and then we utter those words of life. God, we don't know where this is leading, yet if you say so. We don't know how this could possibly work. Yet, if you say so. We have so many doubts and a lot of rants and even more questions. Yet, if you say so. Yet, if you say so, we will try anyway. Yet, if you say so, we will step into beauty again. Yet, if you say so, we will Open ourselves up to the abundant life you promise, to the love you freely give, to the healing you extend. We really don't know, Lord. Yet, if you say so, we will try again.